This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. With the rate of success of some of the big name startups over the last few years, one would think that there are formulas which someone could follow and develop their own entrepreneurial success. But that may not always be the case. In fact, there are several myths about entrepreneurial success that probably should be called out. Ethan Mollick is an associate professor of management at the Warden School. He takes a deeper look into this in his new book, The Unicorn Shadow, Combating the Dangerous Myths that Hold Back Startups, Founders, and Investors. Ethan, great to talk to you again. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So what about, I guess, the culture around startups that, that lead to some of these myths coming, coming out in the first place? Yeah, well, startups, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. There's lots of people talking about startups, uh, but a lot of them don't have data. And we have really good evidence that the p- stories people tell about startups are often detached from the reality of what actually happened. So instead, people pattern match. They look at people who look for people who look like uh, Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates rather than looking at the underlying statistics about what makes a startup successful. So one of the things you talk about is kind of getting out from behind the shadow of other unicorns. Exactly. So a lot of the models that we follow tend to kind of be incorrect. So, for example, um, I I won't quiz you, but just ask the listeners to imagine a successful founder. Like, what do they think a hyper-successful founder looks like? And I'm, I'm willing to bet that I can kind of read their minds, right? So one of the things is this person's probably young. But work done here at Wharton by my colleague uh, Dan Kim, as well as people at MIT, have found that the average age for a founder in the U.S. is 42. The average age for a successful founder who raises venture capital is 42. And the average age for a founder who has a company in the top one one one-thousandth growth of all companies in the U.S. is 45 to 59. So that doesn't always match the image people have in their head. Is that maybe the the biggest myth that's out there, that age difference? Or, or is there another area that, that really just kind of pops out as a, as, a, as a big myth out there? Well, there's a bunch of them, which is why I, the book is hopefully useful. Um, but, I mean, other myths, there's no founder personality type, for example. Um, okay. That uh, there's things that predict someone might try to start a company. But there's no clear personality that makes you successful as a founder. Um, there's a lot of these kind of myths. And part of that all kind of boils down to, we're talking about investing earlier uh, on this program, that even the best startup investors um, aren't that much better than, uh, than you know, groups of non-experts in picking which startups will win once they pass a certain quality threshold. So whether you use algorithms or venture capitalists or panels of academics or the crowd, no one's really that great at predicting who's going to win because it's so complicated. One of the things you discuss is the passionate pitch, but you say the focus really should be more on who you're pitching to uh, than the actual pitch itself. Yeah, so everyone sort of expects a charismatic you know, uh, pitch, right? We watch things like Shark Tank, uh, which academics actually study, um, and to find out, you know, what should a pitch look like? We like those kind of passionate, made-for-TV pitches. But the research actually shows that for panels like the Sharks, that who are expert investors, that passion and that charisma doesn't actually matter very much. What actually matters is how well prepared and put together your pitch is. For amateur investors, passion does matter. But for experts, it doesn't seem to make a difference. And so seeing instances where entrepreneurship falters because of not the right approach, obviously, I think that has impact across the business world, but also in communities as well, correct? 
Right. So one of the things that we find is another sort of problem with entrepreneurship is that the opportunity to run a company and, and to get money is is highly concentrated geographically, but talent is not. Talent is everywhere in the world. It's democratized. But like a venture capitalist, for example, will only invest on average 60 miles from where their headquarters are. And 40% of their investments was just a couple miles from headquarters. So those are all located in places like San Francisco, some in New York, Austin, a couple other cities. Um, so it, it actually can create issues for communities as well. So you mentioned about democratizing entrepreneurship, and and I'd love you to take a moment and and talk about that and and what that is and and how it actually could play out. Yeah. So you know what's fascinating is ideas are everywhere, right? And talent is everywhere. And in fact, if you're an investor, you often want to invest in the kind of people who don't get funding through other means. So, for example, women make up 38% of business owners in the U.S., but they only make up 47% of VC uh, venture capital recipients. So there's a huge issue there. And this is despite research showing that women are just as good at running companies as men. And in fact, women, when they launch companies, um, are more likely to launch companies that target markets or niches that would not otherwise be identified by male founders. So by broadening who gets access to money and who has opportunities to launch startups, we reach more consumers, grow the economy faster, and help um, balance historical inequity. So are you starting to see some of those issues, and, and we've talked about it on the show uh, as well, about some of these issues of female entrepreneurs being able to get that funding. Is some of that starting to go away? So um, I have mostly – so there's good news and bad news. The bad news is, if it is, we're not seeing the stats yet. Uh, the good news is, I think that the last um, couple of years have brought much more awareness about the gender disparities and racial disparities and how VC money is invested and who gets access to it. And there are lots of programs that attempt, have attempted to change this. We haven't seen effects yet, but um, hopefully we will. I mean, at the current rate, I think it would be, you know, it would be uh, decades before at the current rate of growth for women-funded companies versus male-funded companies, it would be decades before women were funded at the parity that men are. So why do you think that you do see in, in certain circumstances founders that maybe are perceived to be more likely to succeed uh, than others? So entrepreneurship is, uh, like I said at the beginning, about pattern matching. Since we can't predict who is going to win, we look for people who seem like they're going to win. And in fact, we actually have evidence that people who manipulate perceptions um, by making, you look, making themselves look like what you'd expect an entrepreneur to look like are more likely to raise funds. So I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, read either the book about Theranos um, or Bad Blood or seen yeah. any of the multiple documentaries. Yeah. But one of the ways that Elizabeth Holmes, who ran the Theranos scam, um, was so successful was she looked the part. She was a Stanford dropout. She wore black turtlenecks. She spoke in an odd voice. She wore lab coats. Everything you'd expect to see in an entrepreneur, she was able to echo those things back. So it's part of the reason why you kind of want to meet expectations is that people are looking to invest in things they think will be successful. And since in the very early stages, the data is, is iffy, it's hard to tell from data, people judge based on does this person seem like they'll be a good founder. Are, are there instances where you, you see some of this play out and, and it actually cuts back on the development of ideas and, and the development of, developments of the startups themselves? Yeah, so um, we, we already know that, you know, that there's a lot of startup, you know, 
we actually have evidence that if a venture capitalist invests in a hot trend, they actually do worse. And startups that start where a hot trend is already underway and join that trend, they, they do worse than other startups. So you'd hope that we would see more diversity of startups because that is a key to personal wealth, right? It's a key to community growth, um, and it's also a key to innovation and job employment. Almost all new jobs in the U.S. come from startup companies uh, you know, that succeed in the long term and not from established organizations. I wonder if there are instances, if you can answer this, where some of these myths end up being in play, even if it's not necessarily coming from the entrepreneur. And I'm wondering if there are times where these are myths that end up being in the mind of the VC. Yes. So we actually see that a lot, right? So venture capitalists are human, and they have all sorts of, uh, of uh, biases in how they see the world. So, for example, one research paper showed that venture capitalists actually ask different questions from women than men. Their questions to women are implicit about how women are not going to lose, while to men it's how they're going to win. So there's all kinds of biases that kind of get built in at a low level. Um, that, you know, is, uh, venture capital is sort of the last shoot from the hip finance profession, right? So you were just giving us the market update. Markets have been professionalized in, when we're talking about trading stocks and, you know, your tra- there's, there's computers and algorithms and, you know, models behind things. Only 11% of venture capitalists in a recent survey have done any kind of a, a quantitative analysis of their success or failure. So they are led by kind of gut decisions to a large extent. In doing this book, your hope is what? So my hope is a few things. One is we, there's a ton of research over the last five years about what makes founders successful uh, and how to be a successful founder, how to come up with good ideas, who you should start a company with. And very few of those have reached out of academia into the mainstream. So part of my goal is to let people know what we're teaching at Wharton, um, where we have a lot of successful founders. Yeah. You should know what we're doing So this is, and what the latest research is. So there's like 150 citations, but it's still fun to read and only like 90 pages. So that's one <laughs> reason, right? And then the other reason for this is to bust these myths, to hope that people will see more reflections of themselves in entrepreneurship and see themselves as having an opportunity to start a company. And you're, and to a degree, you're hopefully bridging a little bit of a gap, correct? Yeah, I mean, that, exactly that kind of thing, right? So I, 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 I was a founder myself, a co-founder of a company. I have one foot in the world of startups uh, and another in academia, and I feel like the two groups don't talk to each other that much. So academics study startups but don't often communicate to them, and startups often look askance at academic knowledge when we have evidence that learning how to be a better founder um, in an academic sense, actually makes you better. So founders that learn to do experiments, for example, uh, study in, in, uh, studies in Italy and China found they actually have two times higher revenue a year later than those that don't. We can teach you how to pitch better. So I want to kind of incorporate all the things we have in our working classes uh, mm-hmm. and try and bridge that gap in the book. Where do you think we are in terms of the rate of success of entrepreneurs and, and their ideas Right now, and I ask that because you know is the hope by maybe bridging the gap that maybe you're also able to incrementally increase that success rate as well. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of simple problems that doom startups, and a lot of those are based on these myths. So that is exactly what I'm hoping to do here. So thank you for the question. It's it really is that if you can dodge a couple of like there's, startups are complicated. We can't solve all your problems. There's lots you need to do. But we know some things that doom startups, having a bad initial founding setup, not having the right kind of team, not generating ideas the right way. 
So if you can solve a couple of those problems with, you know, evidence like the stuff in the book, then I feel like that increases your chance of success or at least, you know, a failing for something more interesting than something other people have failed from in the past. In many cases, then, are some of the mistakes made that, that lead to the downfall of a particular startup or a startup idea, uh, are they relatively easy issues or problems to deal with? So I don't want to make anything seem easy about startups. They're hard to do, right? But there are some basic mistakes people make. So, for example, a really basic mistake is not having a, uh, a business plan and not having a founder's agreement. Companies that have business plans are twice as likely to succeed as those that don't, not because the business plan itself is so important, but because the process of creating a written plan for the future helps focus you and helps work out issues in advance. Similarly, not having agreement among founders about how you're going to divide equity and work, is, is, uh, if you have one of those, your chance of succeeding is 350% greater. So these are really simple things you can do that will increase your chance of success with very little downside risk. Ethan, great to talk to you as always. I appreciate your time. Good luck with the book. All the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ethan Mollick, who is an associate professor of management at the Wharton School, The name of the book is The Unicorn Shadow, Combating the Dangerous Myths that Hold Back Startups, Founders, and Investors. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.